Simo Combo is back and ready to dive into another conversation on the big questions facing top-level marketers. This time, we're joined by Drew Neiser, CEO and founder of Renegade and CMO Huddles, and author of Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands. Drew is here to share his top-notch insights on how B2B CMOs can enhance their marketing by banishing boring branding. This episode brought to you by Deep Crawl. Savvy CMOs know that SEO has never been a more important part of their marketing mix. Ranking at the top of Google search results has a direct impact on revenue by lowering customer acquisition costs, but content and keyword optimization is only part of the picture. Following recent search engine updates, your overall website health and technical performance are key to ranking well in 2021 and beyond. With Deepcrawl's all-in-one technical SEO and website health platform, your team will have the tools it needs to track your website's technical performance, improve page ranking, and stay top of mind with customers by staying top of the search results in Google. Join leading brands who already use Deepcrawl, including teams at Adobe, eBay, Twitch, PayPal, Microsoft, and Canva. Visit deepcrawl.com to ensure your brand reaches its full revenue potential through the one initiative most marketing teams overlook, technical SEO. Hi, Drew. Welcome to CMO Combo. How are you doing today? Will, I'm doing great. Nice to see you. Uh, nice to see you too. Nice to see you too. Um, working from home, I don't get to see that many people when I'm working. So <laughs> the best part of my day is doing this podcast so I can actually see people and talk to people. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? How isolated we've become. Yeah, but it's a... Uh... Uh, but then the isolation, I think, is kind of leading into the subject we're talking today, which is B2B marketing, because business has changed massively, uh, not just because of the pandemic, because of other forces that kind of pushed us towards these new ways of working. Um, but before we get down to that, Drew, uh, could you introduce yourself to our, our audience, maybe tell us a bit about your professional background and why you're worth listening to today? Because I know you're worth listening to, but our <laughs> audience doesn't get Well, hopefully I'll say something intelligent. So let's see. Uh, um Drew Neiser, founder and CEO of Renegade, also founder of CMO Huddles. Uh, let's see, I have um, won a lot of awards for marketing. I've written two books. I've advised dozens of CMOs. And um, I think I know what I'm talking about when it comes to B2B marketing. That's been a focus for the last four or five years of a 40-year career. So, so when it comes to marketing, have you developed a sort of like philosophy and how you approach it? Is there, a, is there a way that you think about marketing that you're, oh, you're going to share with us today? Oh, totally. And yeah. And in fact, the name of the book is Renegade Marketing. And, and that is the, the sort of philosophy. And one of the things, and this sort of helps, I think, frame the conversation in the last four years, my observation has been that marketing has gotten ridiculously complicated, particularly in B2B. And there's a number of reasons for it. And we, in fact, did some research, uh, which was really interesting. We first in 2019 interviewed about uh, 115 CMOs and asked some questions about complexity and tried to understand the complexity. And it turns out 90% said, yep, yeah, uh, way more complex than it was just 12 to 24 months ago. And by the way, a year later, we filled exactly the same survey, and the results were very similar, although this was post the beginning of COVID. So the reasons for the complexity had changed just a tiny bit. But so the reasons for the complexity were sort of the, the data available, the sort of the notion of multiple targets and the number of decision makers, um, MarTech, um, and then when COVID struck, of course, it was the pandemic and, and the fact that they no longer had physical events to work with. And that changed a lot for B2B marketers because that was probably about 50% of the lead flow was coming from physical events. So you had this major disruption with COVID, but the changes were happening earlier and we noticed that. And 
the response to the complexity was to build more complex marketing machines <laughs> and not. And so what you had is these just sort of massive grids of messaging. I got 14 personas, I've got 14 messages. And within those messages, I've got sub messages and nothing stuck. And, and then, you know, we also read some research um, from Brent Adamson of Gartner, who talked about the fact that if you have different messages to different targets, you are 2.2 times less likely to get the sale. And so that was sort of a big moment because it was like, wait, marketing's gotten more complicated and it's less effective. What are we doing here? And so the whole purpose of developing the 12-step uh, plan to build uh, you know, unbeatable brands was, was could we build a much simpler framework for marketers to um, address what is, what isn't, it's a complex challenge, but I think there's a, a simpler solution. And that's what we outline in the book. It, it's interesting that you said some of those things are making life more difficult for, for B2B brands, like stuff like having access to data, all the different MarTech solutions, because you imagine they're supposed to, they're supposed to make life easier, surely. Like, <laughs> no. so why, why aren't they making life easier for, for B2B marketers and well, for CMOs and B2B brands? So it's, um, so if we talk about MarTech for a second, and that I get to that in late in the book, uh, chapter 11, I talk, talk about automate attentively. What's happened is that the tech stack has grown. And I saw a report yesterday that said that the average uh, B2B marketer was spending 19% of their budget on MarTech. And I like gagged because in the book, I talk about keeping it under 10% because MarTech is not marketing. <laughs> MarTech is software or technology. And every time you buy a marketing technology, you have to add probably one to two to three people, but people don't. So if you don't add the people, basically you're adding technology. And there are some cases that are exceptions to that where they actually do bring more efficiencies. But a lot of times, any marketing automation technology requires people to interpret, to fill, to put in the content, to analyze it. Uh, and so what happens is you have these massive tech stacks unsupported by people draining the budget um, and lots and lots of data. So you're still trying to figure out what's happening here. And uh, you know, wanna, again, I think there's ways to radically simplify. I don't have a problem with marketing technology. In fact, I think it's amazing. But I think if you, every CMO listening to this did an audit, and I talk about that in the book, I give a simple list for doing a, a MarTech audit, they could probably reduce their stack 10 to 20% and have no impact on their marketing effectiveness and have a huge impact on their bottom line. And by the way, help their employees because the employees who are working in the marketing automation area or the tech stack are dying because they didn't hire enough people. So you've got overstressed people who are in high demand, by the way. So those people are going to leave if they haven't left already because they can get a $30,000 raise tomorrow because they're understaffed against the, the technology that you bought. So you know, when you automate attentively, uh, and I'm way ahead of myself in terms of the CATS framework, but you really start to, you get some budget back that you can actually use for something like media or content, which is marketing, <laughs> right? So MarTech isn't marketing. It is a way of helping you facilitate or measure marketing, but it's not marketing. No, definitely not. And having all these bells and whistles to sort of tie into the discussion today, you can't have all these bells and whistles without a great brand at the core, a great B2B brand. And it seems like it's a tale as old as time. This tale as old as B2B marketing is people think of B2B marketing as being boring compared to B2C. It's 
the way it seems to have always been. But I think there is a shift happening uh, in the last few years. I think people are moving into recognizing the idea that it's not B2B marketing. It's B2 people who work in a business <laughs> marketing. Uh, there isn't a snappier ac acronym for that just yet, but maybe we can work on that. Yeah, so, I mean, Brian Kramer would say H to H, human to human. It's always, uh, you know, that's always been what works. Um, and it's funny, I was talking to some CMOs yesterday and they were talking about just how those individuals, as individuals representing their companies, they could be human and that was helping their companies. But I, I think that there's a couple of issues I want to point out. One, brand is a really tricky word for startup CMO. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know, and here's, a, here's an example. This is a story that came up recently where uh, we were talking about brand. And one CMO said, if I go and ask for $10 million budget to drive revenue, I'll get $10 million. If I say, I want a $10 million budget, and I'm going to spend $1 million on brand, I'll get $9 million. Uh, you can't use the word a lot of times because brand is considered fluffy, logo, colors, and so forth. And, and I'm sort of, I don't talk about this in the book at, at all, because, uh, but I do talk about the importance of building a brand, what you call it when you're negotiating with your VC or your PE firm or your CEO is a whole nother story. And that's part of sort of the art of being a good marketer is, is knowing how to persuade an internal audience. But I want to step back for a second. And I think there's a bigger issue here, which is, and you started it. So we need to define what our brand stands for. We make it really, really simple. And it's not for the customer that I'm talking about or the prospect. I'm talking about the employees. And this is where, you know, if, if you ask the question, where are CMOs going wrong first? It's that their target audience are in reverse order. They think prospect, customer, employee. And in the book, we talk about employee, customer, prospect. If your employees don't believe in your brand, one, they're going to be higher turnover, which is a huge issue right now. Two, they're not going to advocate on your behalf. Three, customers aren't going to believe you because your employees don't believe. So what is it that's going to make an employees believe? Well, that's why we sort of focus on this purpose-driven story statement. Give them something easy to remember, eight words or less, that they can use to describe the company that they work for and tell their grandmother why they're so proud to work at this company. <laughs> And it's not that complicated. You want to work for a company that you, you're proud of. Uh, and I talk about that in the book a lot. Is In fact, one uh, CMO I know, the only measure he cares about with employees is pride. They measure, are you proud to work for this company or rate it on a, you know, on a scale of one to 10 or on a strongly agree, agree. And if the pride number is high enough, he knows he's doing a good job with marketing. And that's the thing. We're talking about marketing to an internal audience. So there's a lot, I, you know, I've just talked a lot about a lot of different things so we can break these things down, Will, so I'll stop. No, it's, it's interesting. I'm like, I've never thought about measuring employee satisfaction with pride, but it makes so much sense because employees that are, are proud of the brand, they're willing to do more exciting things with that brand as well. If, you, if you've got a marketing department, if they're proud of the brand and they know the brand parameters well and they're happy with them, you can do more exciting marketing that way. It's the, it's the employees who aren't happy with the brand who are just going to sort of crunch numbers and do the day-to-day -day tasks to the minimum effort. It's the people who are proud that are going to put 110% in. And, and this is where the humanizing of a, a B2B brand is, is so important. I'll give you an example, a company that we work with, and you talk about boring, they work in the paper business. It's a company oh, wow. called Case 
paper. I mean, it's pretty basic. They deliver paper, which they cut and trim to printers. Uh, and they have a terrific personality. They are the Joker archetype, which is unusual in the B2B world. Um, and their purpose-driven story statement is on the case. So it's a pun on the case. Okay. And um, but the idea is, and every employee can tell you that this is a company that is reliable, resourceful, and responsive. That's what it means to be on the case. Because every month, employees are recognized under those three categories for being on the case. And so if employees are recognized for being on the case, then they can go, oh, okay, well, now we can recognize our customers, the printers who actually have other customers, and those printers are on the case. So then they develop awards for the printers who are on the case for their customers. And so this thing just cascades down and there's humor in all of it. And they make fun of themselves and they make fun of the world uh, a little bit and they enjoy this notion of being on the case. And it's not just being there in the moment, it is being there you know, smartly, like reliably and responsive. So if you call them and say, hey, we want this paper and they'll say, nah, you know, well, you could save some money if you got this paper. That's the, being on the case, not just sort of delivering on time. Anyway, this company has, has just enjoyed, uh, you know, in a very difficult time, uh, terrific success as a brand, both from a recruiting and retention standpoint, but also from a, a customer growth standpoint. And it shows the, 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 the wonderful element, that, that, that simple core idea that sort of evolved into, into all these different aspects. And it's something that people don't always connect with B2B brands is sort of like that, that humor level. So having some, like a clever idea at the center and then building out from that. How does a B2B CMO go about doing that if, they, if, they, if they're worried that their brand is very boring? Sorry. Um, <coughs> right. So... You know, here's the thing that I, I talk about in the book. I, there are four traits of, and the framework for the book is CATS, which is an acronym for courageous, artful, thoughtful, and scientific. And we start with courageous because this is the deal. If you don't have any courage as a CMO, you're probably in the wrong job. And you're in the wrong job for a couple of reasons. One, you have a very short period of time to make a difference in an organization, right? We've all, you know, everybody, it's legendary how fast the turnover is. But if you're going to make a difference, um, you're going to have to make some change. And if you're going to make some change, it's going to take some courage. And the change that you're going to make is necessary. It's going to have to have a big impact uh, on the company. So the start with, if you don't have courage, you're not making change. And as a result, you're not having impact and you're gonna be you know, out the door in 18 months. And I, this is an oversimplistic uh, conversation at the moment, but I, I can stretch it out a little bit and say, I'm gonna give you, you've got six months to have a quick impact and you've got 18 man, months to have a big impact. So, and they're slightly different. And we talk about in the book how, you know, look for that quick success. You can find a quick win. Any good marketer can look at a marketing plan and see, oh, you know, if we did this instead of that, we could drive it, you know, get a quick win because you have to build credibility with the C-suite. But once you do that, once you can build credibility with the C-suite, then you can get them to see, you know what, marketing can be a huge factor for this company. And so that starts with having the courage to build a distinct brand. And we, in the chapter two, dare to be distinct. Now, I I wanna go back to the first chapter, which is, um, well, let's see, what is the first chapter? I'll clear away the clutter. <laughs> so here's the problem. 
CMO takes the job. The CEO says, oh my God, these are all the things that we need you to do. The CFO says, oh my God, you get two cents instead of 20 cents to do what you want to do. The CRO, the sale, head of sales says, I need a thousand leads tomorrow, right? <laughs> and the HR person is, says, do you mind doing the corporate comms? Because we're not very good at communicating to employees. You have all these needs. And so what a great CMO does is they clear away the clutter. They have this ability to say, these are our top priorities based on the strategic plan of the organization. These are my priorities for the next quarter, six months, nine months. And if it's not on that list, they're saying no. That takes courage because otherwise you are just, and this has gotten worse in COVID because you know since we're, not work, we're working at home, we have more hours. So those hours didn't go to exercise. Those hours didn't go to expanding your brain. They went to work. So you're just answering emails from seven in the morning to 10 at night. And, and the result is you haven't cleared away the clutter. So this is the moment where in that chapter, giving you permission to say no with a very smart, but you're, you're doing it because you have a, a clear strategic plan, which you have a, gotten agreement with the C-suite on. You've got agreement on the metrics that matter. And you're going forward with a relatively simple but big picture thing, right? You, you're going to drive revenue. There's no doubt you have to drive revenue. But how? Short-term, long-term, right? You're going to drive revenue with some demand programs and a bigger brand idea than you currently have. Well, you're going to have to clear away the clutter to do that. And clearing the way the clutter, I suppose that can apply to how a lot of B2B brands, particularly in the startup space, are currently marketing themselves as well, because they tend to market mainly around features rather than the actual value of the product. How does a, how does a B2B CMO go about selling that idea? Like, because they don't want to step on the toes of the, the CTO and their tech department. They don't want to say, all this stuff you're doing doesn't matter. What matters is the final values. How do, how do they get everyone else on board with that kind of messaging? You know, there's this is the hard part of being a CMO because you are um, dependent on a lot of things, right? You're dependent on the product people to have a great product that has a, a clear promise uh, built in, baked in ideally. You're dependent on the CFO to believe enough in marketing to give you a budget, right? <laughs> As opposed to the, the sort of, hey, just do magic with social media, right? Uh, you're, there's so all these dependencies, and that's why I talk about the need for artfulness, because you need to be an artful communicator internally and externally. Um, so I think the answer to this question is, it's not easy, but if you start with, if you have firm agreement with the C-suite on what, where we're trying to go, right? It's as simple as that. Then you say, all right, what can we do to make the customer's life easier. This is the problem that with most communications is where they start is, what is the message that I wanna say? That's right, we were gonna start here, right? I'm gonna sell you this coffee cup. What, this is, a, this is a great coffee cup, you should buy this coffee cup. And it's great because it's got coffee in it. Um, whereas the, what we should be doing is saying, why does someone, how can I help someone uh, today? What can I do for them, right? Well, hmm, you know, coffee might wake them up in the morning in a, in a good positive way. I need some coffee right now. It's, a, it's focusing outward as opposed to inward. And this is like 90% of the problem, right? You got, a, you got a tech group who said, I got all these features in it. Oh, we got to talk about all these features. And you got a 
a CFO is a just move the widgets and a CEO is on pressure to, you know, again, make your numbers, make your numbers grow, 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 grow. Uh, and it doesn't, life doesn't work like that, right? Nobody just buys because you tell them, hey, there's a great feature here. They buy because, you know, they, they, they've sort of figured out this is going to help them in their lives and their jobs and their work in some capacity. So we call this, in, in, I used to call this marketing as service. Now in the book, we call it selling as service. It's what can you do to help your customers? What can you do? Period. Start, you know, full stop. And it may not even be anything to do with your product or service. <laughs> and I suppose, it, I suppose it goes back to what you're saying about employee pride as well. Employees are going to have pride in how they're helping their customers more than all the bells and whistles that they're selling to people. Like if you've said, oh, you've made this impact on this business or this impact on these employees' lives in this major way, that's a lot more, that's a lot more like able to instill pride in someone than saying, oh, we've given such and such this messaging platform that lets them message 50 people at once or something like that. It's, it's all about how you're actually helping the people on the far, at the, at the far end of your, of your marketing, at the, at the far end of your sales tunnel, funnel. It's all about what are you giving to the customer at the end? Not, not what are the components of what you're giving to the customer. It's what you're actually giving. You're giving peace of mind. You're giving the ability to do their work better. And that kind of messaging is always going to be more important than uh, we've got we're like 0.2% faster now or something like that. I, you know, I, I just, I, I laugh because uh, during the, when, when COVID began, uh, I know several uh, CMOs who, company brilliantly called every single customer and said, how are you guys doing? How's your cash flow? What can we do? How can we help you? Um, and what they discovered was that, you know, in some cases, the customers were really hurting and they said, okay, you know what? You don't have to pay us the next two months, but we'll put it on the back end and extend the contract. Or they found, you know, there's an aspect of our product that you're not using that you could be using that would help you in this situation. So the level of empathy, suddenly empathy became a, a very important word uh, for all these CMOs, both internally and externally. Uh, and, you know, obviously there were people, there were CMOs who were inherently empathetic, but suddenly every CMO realized, oh my God, I, I got to pay attention to this. This is bad. I, I've got employees who are really you know, either sick or worried about being sick. And I've got customers who don't know where their business is going. So that part of, and I had one CMO early on in the pandemic said, the more we, uh, the less we sold, the more we sold. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, all they were doing was trying to help. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. And I, and I think that's the mindset that's very hard to convince rational, scientific, engineers who are often at the center of startups, it's very hard to convince them that this sort of emotional connection that you make with a customer, uh, an employee, customer, or prospect uh, is what's not only going to increase the likelihood of sell, but it's going to, uh, you know, accelerate um, deal flow. It's going to do change, change a lot of things. Now, I will say one other thing that the pandemic brought to life that I think is so interesting, and I write about this in the book. At the very beginning of the pandemic, businesses that were doing well were considered essential businesses, right? I mean, hospitals were essential business. Doctors were essential business. But so was everything in the cloud. Every business that was in the cloud, Zoom became an essential business. We needed to communicate. 
but there were many others. And if you weren't essential, you met this person called the CF no, <laughs> which is the CFO who just said, we're not spending money on anything unless you can prove that it's essential to us now to keep the business operating, right? Well, that notion, I'll call it essentialism, is such an interesting idea. Because if you say to a, how, do, how is our business essential to our customers? What are we doing right now that makes this essential? It's a very different conversation. It is, it is. And it's, it's something that causes you to rethink how your entire approach to the business. Like if you've just been doing like a, a product, yeah, it, it instills like more belief in the product. Like you were saying again, the pride. Like if, you, if you can think of how you're actually essential to the day-to-day right. machination of someone, again, you're going to have more pride in doing that job and doing that doing that responsibility. Because what we're doing is important, right? And so what companies started to think about is, oh, well, we're not essential. You know, no, we're a nice to have, not a must have. So Mm -hmm. what they (laughs) started working on was, well, in order to be essential, we either need to be able to prove an ROI that because everybody's trying to figure out how are we going to make more money because the business might slow down. There was big concern about that, right? So they started to change the product or the pricing or this, the way they service so that they could have a faster ROI. Um, they were looking at lighter versions of the product to make it easier for a customer to get started. You know, product-led marketing, which is, you know, this notion of sort of a free freemium thing did very, very well because there's no risk up front. You took away the barrier. So if you're not essential, you better be free. <laughs> <laughs> right. And those companies did very well uh, as well because they, um, you know, that, that sounds like a good price to get started. Um, but there's also something I would argue about free that is part of this sell through service. If you give something away and that we're in this give to get economy, if you're giving something away with all of your marketing, and that's where content fits in, that is a value, you have a chance of building a relationship. You've just cut all the barriers, right? There's no risk for me to try except for my time. So as long as I believe that it's going to be worth my time to try this free product, uh, you've made life a lot easier. You've given something in order to get the customers at time and attention. Now, of course, it better be good. And I I suppose if something is essential to your day-to-day working life as well, you're going to build an emotional connection to that. Like like, like, we We use Slack for um because we're all remote working it's the way we keep in touch if i lost slack i would lose my connection to all my co-workers all the people yeah. that i work with all the people that i communicate with on a daily basis i wouldn't have that that avenue of connection so slack is an essential part of my life yeah. i feel like i probably do have, it's sad to say i feel like i do have an emotional connection to slack and it's those and, kinds of products that are building great b2b brands well and and slack you know boomed Mm-hmm. in 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 COVID is suddenly everybody realized oh my god this is an essential thing as opposed to just for the tech guys now it became almost the way businesses operate uh so yeah you're you're right and that's a good observation and slack is a freemium product mm-hmm. yeah and and also do you think maybe this shift towards sort of human focused b2b marketing it's only going to get more intense, I feel, as we move forward. Like I, I was reading a study the other day about um, Gen Z, and 54% of Gen Z have said they aspire to entrepreneurship. They want to run their own businesses. And they're going to have 
require very different types of marketing than traditional, I'm doing quote marks for people who are listening, right. traditional B2B marketing. So building those kinds of emotional connections with customers and delivering value to people who might not be tech savvy, might not understand the features. It's only become more and more important as we move into this, the, the Gen Z dominated workspace. Like how can CMOs prepare for that? Do you think like, how can, how can B2B CMOs be ready for that shift? So here's an interesting thing. And this, I, I, I'm going to reveal my age here is that there's generational change and then there's the revert to the mean. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, every generation is coming through is announced as incredibly different. 20 years later, they're looking back at the next generation saying, oh, they're incredibly different. But the, the, there's, there is some reversion to the mean. Uh, I, I will say that, first of all. And so I think it is sometimes a mistake for a brand to say, oh, we want to appeal to this particular group, as opposed to saying, how do we help a target? You know, and, 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 but, but to change your company to try to appeal to that is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause for a second because there's a couple of differences here. If you are recruiting these individuals, then there is no doubt you need to have their mindset, right? No doubt. And you need to be where they are. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, does every B2B brand, though, need to be on TikTok? No, not necessarily. Soon, maybe. Soon, maybe. Every maybe. B2B brand maybe. And, yeah. and I don't have an answer to that, but I, I think that there's probably a good chance that they do need to be if that's where their recruiting pool is going to come from, even if their customer pool isn't going to come from there. Um, right. So I, I, I don't have an answer to what you're talking about there. I'm not a Gen Z expert. What I am an expert on is how B2B brands build. And it's relatively simple in, in that the, you start with a distinctive promise, a commitment to the marketplace, you then figure out ways of communicating that promise in very clever ways against employees, customers, and prospects. You put it on one page, one plan, one page. <laughs> you say, I'm going to do six things against employees that build this idea, customers, and then prospects. And all of them are designed to be of value to those individuals, right? then I know you're in safe territory regardless of the channel. Cause I never recommend, I don't, you know, channels are interesting in that I know some B2B brands that completely stop marketing on digital completely other than their website. They put it all in outdoor and radio <laughs> and they were zigging when everybody was there. And by the way, it worked. Wow. That, 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 so, that, 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 that's impressive. That, that's right. a, and as so, a digital marketer. It, that's like, how, how, how did they do that? How? Yeah. And so, yeah. because, because in truth, it's very hard to ignore billboards. And if you buy the right ones and you're targeting Silicon Valley and you buy something, a billboard on 101, which is, you know, going, goes through Silicon Valley to San Francisco, everybody's going to see those. And they, they might even talk about it and they might even share it on social if it's clever enough. And so, Media is one of those things that I think you experiment with, but don't make assumptions uh, in terms of what's going to work and what isn't. That's why I don't prescribe a particular media approach. Um, I do think you can test and learn, um, but I, 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 a number of brands I know have, uh, and they reach a certain stage where they can't 
increase awareness or effectiveness anymore on digital. They go on television, they spend some money and their digital starts to improve. You know, that these are things that, 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 uh, a lot of folks uh, under 30 forget is that these other channels can work even in B2B. So again, I'm sort of, I'm, we've gone off topic a little bit, but I think that there aren't formulas when it comes to media and, but there are formulas when it comes to brand and you can get that right. And you can do it in a way that Again, employees, customers, and prospects start to feel really good about the company. I want to do business with these guys because I like them. They've helped me. They can be funny, but not every brand can be funny. That's a hard role. Not but every brand you, should be funny. Like no, there's some, some brands no, you don't want I mean, to be funny. Right. Although I think there's room for a funny brand in every category. I, and I don't care what it is. I mean, it, there, there's room for a humorous bank. There's room for a humorous accountant. There's a hu room for a humorous lawyer. There is. Um, but very few have the, you know, chutzpah, uh, as they say in Yiddish, they, that, to, to do that. Um, so, but if, and we talk, in the, in the book, I talk about archetypes and what almost so many brands want to be the hero brand. That's a mistake. You're not the hero. You're at best. You're the sidekick. You're Obi Wan Kenobi too. Uh, but even that, those the hero and the sidekick are very crowded in B two B, or the wise sage. Right? I want to be the wise sage. Well, if you look at most B two B categories, you will find they're either heroes or wise sages. So why not be the what they they they're the, there's room there's 12, there's, you know, like 10 other archetypes that you can find space for. You could be the Explorer brand. You could be the, you know, the sort of um, the Disney, like the magic brand. Um, you know, there, there's space. And this is where, you know, part of the brand, understanding brand will help the marketer, whether or not you can educate your CEO or CFO or not is, you know, you could, it gives you language, uh, finding your archetype will give you language. It can make it easier. And so again, if you have this eight words that, de that define the brand and set a purpose, and then you put an archetype underneath it, um, you've simplified your, your approach so radically, uh, that then you go, Oh, okay. I know who we are. I know how we speak. Now we just have to figure out how do we help our customers? So when it, when it comes to the archetype though, like how important is the existing corporate culture in defining that, but like you can't suddenly just like tell, say your marketing team is very good at very, very serious style marketing and you decide, no, we need to be the joker now. Right. Like what if your marketing team isn't funny? What if they can't be, what if they can't be the jokers? Like, do you have to yeah. start from scratch with your team or is it more oh, that's about interesting. finding the archetype that fits? Um, well, so I do think you need uh, in, in the case of case paper, the CMO is, is a humorous individual, and he's hired a bunch of uh, uh, freelance uh, writers who are improv people to sort of provide the right voice of the brand. And those people, you know, have struggled to have work, so they're happy to have it. Everybody's winning on that formula. So, but you bring up an interesting question about culture and culture change. And we're at a really interesting time with culture. And I don't talk about this in the book, but I've seen it now, which is what is culture when you don't have an office, right? And, and you're seeing that in the great 
uh, resignation, particularly people who started in COVID, they're not connected to the company because they haven't physically been there. So I think this is where marketing and the, the, the head of uh, HR have to come together and talk about what does, where do these things intersect, the sort of brand and culture and so forth, and how do we make sure we do this on a virtual basis? And there's a lot going on in this, in this space. So that's part one of it, which is how do you build culture? And it's really hard. And I will say it's hard, but you have to pay attention to it. And then the whole notion of culture as a pervasive notion has changed a little bit in thinking. It's used to be, we're going to hire the people who fit to the culture. Mm-hmm. Now we're hiring people who can enhance and expand the culture. This whole notion of neurodiversity and that we want that kind of diversity of thinking and people. So um, culture is a work in progress. And again, I don't really address that in the book so much as to say that once you decide with your executive team and your employees, I mean, here's the thing, here's a really easy tip. The first thing I recommend a CMO do day one on the job is field an employee survey. And I, 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 list, I give the points on what you should ask in the book. There's the survey right there. Put it in a survey monkey, field it the first day. And you do two things. One, you're saying, I care about what you think. I want your opinion. But two, you're getting a really important information because there's an open-ended question, four words to describe the brand. And you really hear what employees think of the brand. And that's important because as you're talking about, if you are going to try to shift it, you need to know where they are. And this is something a lot of CMOs don't do. They say, oh, well, our HR is doing the employee survey. Why should I do that? No, no, no. You need to take ownership of that because it's a goldmine. And if you know where they are right now, one, that may be beautiful. It may be able to inform where you want to go or you know you're gonna have to change it, in which case then we can devise a program. If we're here and we need to be here, if we weren't funny and we wanna be funny, then we need a whole set of programs. And there are companies who have, for example, who humor is really important to them. They have humor training programs, how to be funny (laughs) as part of their culture. They have stand-up class, they have improv class, and it's part of the culture. So if you're gonna go there, that's what you do. And you make that part of the value of the company. So it, again, I'm, I don't want to make this complicated. I want to try to keep it simple. Employees, customers, prospects, and everything. So if we start day one, we survey the employees and we get that information, and then we decide we need to be somewhere else, then we can figure out how to get there. Yeah. So you you come up with a, sorry, um, you come up with the destination first, and then it's the CMO's job to roadmap it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 But um, you have to ground it on where we are today. Yes. Yeah, of course. Because it's it's the employees that are going to help you build the brand. Because it's CMOs aren't building a brand by themselves. Right. They're working within a larger organization to do that. So getting getting the employees engaged with that process on day one is going to make that process easier right. in the long run, surely. Like in in the same way as getting them engaged with the brand motivates them get them engaged with the process of building a brand or potentially rebranding right. gets them engaged with that more effectively as well. Yeah. And I, I want to give sort of some thoughts here on this because this is driving me crazy and out there what I see with new CMOs. Now, I'm going to say about 70% of new CMOs feel like they need to change the brand. 
which often means, oh, a logo exploratory, uh, uh, you know, uh, sometimes even a naming exploratory and a website redo. We got to fix all that. And, you know, my advice in the book is, is that you're wasting your time. The only reason to change a logo or to change a website is a, first of all, let's start with the logo. The only reason to change the logo is because the company has grown out of it from a product and service standpoint. So it no longer represents the brand. Like you are radically want to change the shift. I want you to think about the brand completely differently, right? Most of the time a CMO comes into the job. They're not, there's not radical news. You know, yeah, if you had a merger where you have five companies coming together and suddenly the software, you went from a single service uh, product to a platform, that's a radical change. Fine, change the logo. That is not the case most of the time. So what they do is they spend six months to 12 months changing the brand and the logo and the colors, and they're just playing into the perceptions of that, that you know, marketing is fluffy. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that what you are focusing on is really important to the business. And you know that, number one, that in terms of the CEO and the CFO, they care about revenue. They don't care about marketing. So you need in your mind to be thinking about, okay, I know I need to improve the brand. But in order to prove the brand, I probably need to bring purpose to this organization. But in order to do that, I need to know that I can drive revenue first. And it's, it's, Unfortunate that that is the reality, but it is the reality. If you want to have an extended tenure as a CMO, you have to first recognize that revenue is how you're going to be measured. You have to partner with your CRO and your CFO to figure out how marketing impacts revenue. You have to know how to get what pipeline is right now, today. Pipeline, if you can't give a number, what marketing's contribution is to pipeline or opportunities, you have a problem. So you got to get there. That's got to be like, as you're, as you're doing your employee survey and getting the information about what the perceptions of the brand are internally, and then you're doing your customer survey to do the same thing, you got to look at where you are on your pipeline and figure out, okay, how are we going to measure this and how are we going to fix it? So we got this parallel track and one is long-term and one is short-term. Again, this is why this job is so darn hard and why I have so much empathy for CMOs because it's like, well, what do, where do I start? There's so many problems to fix. And so, you know, I think what the book does and what all the interviews that I've done over the last 10 years show is that if you, if you create a simple framework, you can solve these problems. If you allow yourself to get stretched in a million directions, you can't. Wise words to live by there, <laughs> Drew. I think, I think that, that applies to not just to, to CMOs, I think anyone in life should be applying that kind of system to how they tackle problems and tackle issues. Um, yes. So I think- well, I let think me, so yeah. I agree with you to the point that at the end of chapter one, I want, we can do this together. I have something called the clear away the clutter pledge. <laughs> and it's five points. And I'm just gonna read these points because well, I think we can do this together. Let's do it. Number one, I will focus relentlessly on a handful of strategic priorities. You got those? I got those. Everyone in the listening has got those. Easy. I will have the courage to say no to distractions. Ooh, 
that's, that's a hard a tough one. one. That's a tough one. Yeah. That's a tough one. I will delegate everything except the things only I can do that will move the organization forward. Man, I, I should have put that number one for, for CMOs. I think so. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a lot of things that CMOs could do to delegate that they're not doing, but. Right. I won't add to my to do list without taking something off of it. Ooh. Ooh. it's fun writing lists some people like uh, some people like just making lists longer i know but we're going to take something off every time we add to it and then i will block off 30 minutes a day for thinking big that's the clear away the clutter pledge uh, I, I like it drew i like it i like it i think yeah something that cmos and just marketing in general could do with uh bring more into those lives their lives that kind of ethos um so can you remind um, our audience, the, the title of your book um, sure. and where it's, it's available. It's, yes. So it's uh, Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands, uh, available on Amazon in paperback, ebook, and audio. Awesome. Um, so we've, we've kind of given a, an overview of what you, some of the information you can find in there. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more to be found in there. Um, I, I certainly need to check it out. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, Drew. We've covered a whole bunch of stuff that I'm sure is going to be valuable to our audience. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing. It's so important. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so thank you again for joining us, Drew. And thank you for listening. And we'll be back uh, soon with more CMO combos.